Happy Friday evening, everybody. Tonight, I'm going to be taking a look at a book that I've read two times through, and it has enlightened me and blessed me beyond measure. It's written by a black American. His name is Vody Bachman, and it's called Fault Lines. We're going to look at it tonight, so stay tuned and check it out. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light. of human liberty can only strengthen the cause of world peace. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. But because of the Watergate matter, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. One small step for man. All the God's children be able to sing with new meaning. My country tears of me. Sweet land of liberty of the IC. We shall pay any price, bear any dirt, uphold any foe to ensure the survival and the success of liberty. It is indeed we are the defenders of freedom. With the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph. So help us God. We hold these truths be self-evident that all men are created one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Those who forget the past are destined to be And now, your host, Pastor Rob McCoy. Was I promised you in the beginning that we were going to take a look at uh, this profound and powerful uh, new book written by Vody Bachman. Uh, he, he is, uh, he's got a PhD doctorate. Uh, he's an ordained minister. He's a missionary. He's a black American, and he came from a single-parent family, uh, impoverished, and yet he didn't buy into critical race theory. And of course, with critical race theory, somebody like Vody is going to be dismissed. He's not black enough. And it has nothing to do with the content of his melanin as much as his ideology, which proves that critical race theory has enormous flaws and problems. But Vody Bachman goes into great detail in his book, Fault Lines. And he also points out how churches in America have been duped. I've read this book cover to cover two times. And... Uh, I'm going to be heading to Florida, and I'm going to read it again uh, on the flight there. It's a great book. You need to check it out. Our children right now are being subjected to revisionist history in the 1619 project that's being thrust upon the minds of our kids in public schools. And also now we're teaching racial studies, and uh, we're pitting some races against another, and we're invoking uh, chants by uh, dead Latin gods and goddesses and all taking place in the California school systems, at least in the curriculum that they want to thrust upon our children. Um, I'm, I'm looking and I'm thinking, I don't know what history they studied, but that's not the history that occurred. And, and they, they use things by saying America is systemically racist. And granted, America's problems in our history of 244 years, our problems are universal. Our successes are unique. 
Our founders put together in an era where slavery was acceptable, a government that would do away with that slavery. And they go, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, the three-fifths compromise was one of those big issues where they reduced the value of a, of a black human being and they only made them three-fifths human. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the way that they portray it, but that's not the truth. The truth is you had 13 colonies that were having to band together to put together a constitution to contend with the greatest empire on the face of the earth, Great Britain, that had just defeated the second greatest empire, Paris, or excuse me, France. And they had defeated France, and now they had to uh, defend themselves from this, this empire, this British empire. And so they put together a constitution knowing that the southern states, a handful of them, not nearly a majority, wanted to count their slaves as citizens without giving them citizenship so that they could get representation in the Congress and have more power to enforce their slavery. And those who put the Constitution together said, no, we're going to call it the Three-Fifths Compromise. If you're not going to treat them as human beings, although they are, if, if you're not going to do it, we're not going to allow you to obtain representation in the Congress for someone whom you do not give full humanity to. And so they did what was called the Three-Fifths Compromise, that these slaveholders couldn't use their slaves to benefit for representation in Congress. And that's why they did what they did. Take a look at the Three-Fifths Compromise. It was a compromise reached among the state's delegates during 1787, United States Constitutional Convention, due to disputes over how enslaved people uh, would be counted when determining a state's total population, because with the population is your representation. This number would determine the state's number of seats in the House of Representatives and how much it would pay in taxes. The compromise counted three-fifths of each state's enslaved population toward the state's population for the purpose of apportioning the House of Representatives. Even though enslaved people were denied voting rights, this gave southern states a third uh, more representatives and a third more presidential electoral votes than if enslaved people had not been counted. Free blacks were not subject to the compromise and counted as one full citizen for representation. So saying that our Constitution made people three-fifths human is not true. Enslaved human beings for the sake of not allowing their masters who they abhorred and wanted to do away with slavery could not use their slaves to obtain a greater representation in the deliberating body of government to try to continue to enforce their slavery. You see how they turn history around? And then the 13th Amendment, uh, this is the emancipation of slavery. And, and here you have the 13th Amendment. We're going to take a look. Section 1, neither slave nor involuntary servitude except as punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Section 2, Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. It goes on, but the idea is, is slavery was abolished. <laughs> the 13th Amendment, done. Finished. Civil War had been fought. Lincoln, the North, we won. Slavery was over. And they, they didn't know what to do with all of these slaves who had been born in the African continent, many of them, some didn't know where they had been born. Others had been born in the United States, uh, but their parents weren't citizens because they had been slaves. And all of a sudden, slavery is lifted, and you have um, a, an entire mass of humanity that 
is, are, are now citizens of the United States. And, and of course, their previous masters didn't want them to be citizens. They didn't want them to vote. And, and they certainly don't want them to be able to hold office. And so they put together the 14th Amendment. And I'm going to tell you how this has been messed with in modern day. But the 14th Amendment, Section 1, real simple. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. So these persons who were born or naturalized in the United States, meaning these previous slaves, are fully citizens. You, 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 they, they get all the rights of every citizen. And so now we use it as uh, if you can get across the border illegally and you can get your child born here and then that child's here and then you can anchor that child and now you got a citizen and then the family and the, that's, that, that's a misuse of that. That was to incorporate all of the slaves that had been given citizenship based on the 13th Amendment. And then it goes on to say by due process, so you can't take anything from them. And that was profound. So this is a little bit of revisionist history and just looking at what the document itself says and the purpose for why it was done. But that's not really covered in Vody's book. In Vody's book, they deal with uh, social justice. Social justice. Uh, I, I think those are two, two cool words. Social meaning any ill will that is in society and justice, God's justice being achieved. And, and we want that to, to happen. And it seems to be prevalent uh, amongst churches in America. Um, but the critical race theory and what's happening in the churches in America, it's not social justice. This is social engineering. Uh, this isn't equality. This is equity. Uh, this is where we're trying to redistribute wealth. Uh, this is where we're putting by anti-racism, we're putting in racism. Uh, it, it's, it's fascism. It's awful. And, and I love what Vody says in his book, Take a look at this in regards to social justice. He writes, there can be no reconciliation without justice. And he says, when I hear that, I want to scream, yes, and the death of Christ is that justice. All other justice is proximate and insufficient. It is because of Christ's work on the cross that we can heed the apostles' admonition. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you, Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Vody writes, Who am I to tell a white brother that he cannot be reconciled to me until he has drudged up all of the racial sins of his ancestors past and made proper restitution? Christ has atoned for sin. You see, in this world of social justice, what we're doing to our children now is based on their immutable trait. We're making them have to feel guilty and carry the shame of their ancestors. Um, by the way, if you want to impugn me with that, I want you to know my ancestors fought in the North. In addition, my ancestors, especially Irish slaves, they were cheaper than African slaves because they just had to go across the channel to get them. Uh, and I'm to pay reparations, and my children are as well, and we're supposed to genuflect based on an immutable trait that I had no control over. 
And then what about the soldiers who died stopping slavery? Uh, is, is the 650,000 deaths on a field of battle, the president with a bullet to the back of his head, is, is that not reparations? Do those soldiers get anything? And what about uh, black Americans who immigrated here from Africa because the, the most successful immigrants to America are Nigerians that are black Americans from the African continent that itself. Do they receive reparations? And, and do the Muslim slaveholders and the slave owners and those who enslave their own countrymen in Africa, do they pay reparations? This, is, this has nothing to do with past sins. This has to do with a redistribution of wealth. This has to do with, with guilting people with something that they're not responsible for. And Vody Bachman takes this on. They, they tried to use these issues um, in the news to point out that America's systemically racist, and we've been hearing this drumbeat endlessly, and the media has portrayed it as well. I mean, uh, there's a lot going on. But Vody goes to the scriptures, and that's what I appreciate about this man in, in, a, in a large sense, but many other reasons why as well. Take a look at Exodus 20, verse 16. The scripture says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Um, this is where we got due process laws. It actually comes from the scriptures. Some of the most liberal justices on the Supreme Court easily attribute Christianity to due process. I mean, the Salem witch trials were ended by ministers who applied due process as they read that scripture and others, and that you have to have two or three witnesses and these things have to occur. So you can't bear false witness. It's critical. And then uh, we studied this uh, last Sunday. This is out of John 14. Jesus speaking. Jesus said to him, meaning uh, to Thomas. Jesus said to Thomas, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So you don't bear false witness. And Jesus is declaring himself to be the truth. Psalm 119, which every Jewish child by their bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah used to be required to memorize, it, it elevates the law and points out how from the moral law we have civil, civic law and that we're to allow it to govern our lives. The psalmist writes in Psalm 119, verse 43, and then we'll take a look at verse 160, but in verse 43, the psalmist says, And take not the word of truth utterly, out of my mouth, for I have hoped in your ordinances. So truth is critical here. And then verse 160, the entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. So justice is the Lord's. His word is true. He declares that we can't bear false witness against one another. And Jesus goes on further to say in John 17, 17, the entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. This is justice. This is God. This is how He operates. His justice is, is true and it's right. James 1.17, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Now, these are the passages. And, and, and then we're going to, I think, close with Proverbs 6. And these are the six things that the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to Him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, 
and one who sows discord among brethren. That's Proverbs 6, 16 to 19. That's, um, that's the idea of what the scriptures believe as far as justice is concerned, that truth is critical and you don't bear false witness against someone. The scripture goes on to say that one man gives his testimony, but until another speaks, that one seems right. We have to have witnesses and folks have to be able to defend themselves. But uh, this, this idea that America is systemically racist has been put forward through the news media by selected accounts. And Vody Bachman goes into great detail to bring another portion of evidence so that we would take a look at that and understand what it is that's taking place. I know this is probably not going to be the way you want to do it, but I'm going to read to you some excerpts. And if it bores you that I'm reading, then just close your eyes and listen. But uh, this is out of his book. He writes, My goal when I hear about injustices is to bear in mind that I am biased. I am a single witness with limited information, and I carry a ton of baggage. And I think that's true for all of us. So when I evaluate people's testimonies and pleas, and when people are shouting, justice for George or Ahmad or Brianna or Trayvon or anyone else, I always want to bear in mind the words of John 7, 51. Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? I also want to remember that the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. That's Proverbs 18, 17, a great one to keep in mind when the media becomes judge, jury, and executioner. Uh, the other side didn't get a chance to speak. Why do they censor? Because they have to put forward propaganda. Why don't they let others speak? Why don't they bring evidence forward? And so here with Proverbs 18, 17, that being listed, Bodhi writes, which is why if one gives an answer before he hears, it is, his, it is his folly and his shame. That's Proverbs 18, 13. You, you, you come up with an answer and you make a decision based on uh, not knowing all the evidence. It's to your folly and your shame. I mean, we've watched churches put up these black tiles and they have no idea what they're doing. They're just complete. Some do. But the lion's share, they're just ignorantly innocent. And it's, it's, it's tragic. So he writes, Today people are rioting and demanding justice before knowing the facts, and in most cases without ever considering the aforementioned principles. And here's the key. People are ignoring these principles because the standard of justice upon which their pleas are built does not come from God of the Scriptures. It doesn't come from the God of the Scriptures. And while that may be fine for others, those of us who claim to know Christ are held to a different standard. So this is for pastors and shepherds. You should read this book. It's solid, especially if you're leaning towards the woke crowd and you, you think social justice is putting up a black tile and marching with BLM Inc. You, you really should do your homework and look at both sides of the story. Vody did his homework. Every one of these is footnoted. you got to take a look at it. The book's called Fault Line. Take a look at it. Here's a little bit more. I'm not going to keep you long, but you need to hear this. This is critical for tonight. He talks about exposing a false narrative, and he writes, In a now famous tweet, NBA star LeBron James wrote, We're literally hunted every day, every time we step foot outside the comfort of our homes. 
A New York Times headline proclaimed last June, pandemic within a pandemic, coronavirus and police brutality, royal black communities. The story quoted a protest organizer who said, I'm just as likely to die from a cop as I am from COVID. Not to be outdone, the Washington Post headlined a story, police killing black people is a pandemic too, with a subhead stating state violence is a public health crisis. Vox echoed the claim, citing National Academy of Science research that suggests one in every 1,000 black men and boys can expect to be killed by police in this country. Al Jazeera even joined the chorus with an entire website called Know Their Names, which featured black men and women killed by the police. Apparently, regardless of the circumstances, no wonder the chairman of Black Lives Matter, the greater New York, told Fox News, if this country doesn't give us what we want, then we will burn down this system and replace it. All this stems from and perpetuates the perception that police are killing unarmed black men. And if you think I'm being misogynistic, Vody writes, by excluding women from the phrase, just do a quick web search. It's not just me. A search of the archive reveals that NPR has used the phrase unarmed black man 82 times in the past year. Five of those were headlines, writes Kelly McBride in an insightful piece for the Boyner Institute. She notes that of those 82 uses, 26 came in newscasts read at the top of the hour. 65 of them occurred in the 187 days after Arbery. A 25-year-old Georgia man was killed in February of 2020, and McBride's article was published on August 31, 2020. But over that same time period, and phrase unarmed white man does not appear anywhere in NPR's coverage. In case you're wondering about the absence of the phrase unarmed white man, it was not due to a lack of opportunity. Eleven of those were killed by police over that 187-day span. Stephen O'Brien was killed by police in Floresville, Texas, the day after Arbery on February 24th. Christopher Palmer was killed in Manila, Arkansas on March 4th. Kenneth Mullins was killed in Edison, California on March 6th. Brian Marksberry and Aaron Tolan were killed in Humboldt, Texas and Wasilla, Alaska. On March 8th, John Hendrick was killed in Linwood, North Carolina, on March 26th, Zachary Gifford was killed in Brandon, Colorado. April 9th, Giuseppe Particione was killed in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And on April 10th, Nicholas Bills was killed in San Diego, California. On May 1st, Tyler Hayes was killed in Sales Creek, Tennessee. On May 19th, uh, and Jefferson, Jeffrey Scott uh, Stott, excuse me, Harsma was killed in St. Petersburg, Florida on August 7th. But you didn't hear any of their names, did you? And by the way, please don't miss the fact that while police killed these unarmed white men, they did not kill Arbery. Arbery's murder would fall under another category that people would rather forget, interracial violence. I'll say more about that later, he points out, and he goes through that. It's fascinating that in this, this book, he points out that correlation is not causation. He, he points out he's not a mathematician, but he does look at the statistics that have been put, been put forward, and he cites the statistics. He's reminded daily and bombarded with statistics that are put towards him when he debates 
in the public square. And he hears this all the time repeated 2.5 to 1, the implication that it's a stat that proves systemic racism in America. Whenever you hear this mantra, he says, don't forget Proverbs 18.17. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. And this one who states his case must be examined in the light of, one, the nature of the claim itself, two, the individual cases that are frequently cited in evidence of the claim's veracity, and three, the inconvenient truth about interracial violence in America. And when we examine the 2.5 to 1 stat in these ways, meaning 2.5 black men to every one, we discover it does not hold up. The best research on the topic of fatal officer-involved shootings, they're called FOIAs, F-O-I-S, has been clear, as were the findings of Harvard economist Roland Fryer Jr. in the forthcoming study on the most extreme use of force. Fatal officer-involved shootings, he writes, we find no racial difference in either the raw data or when contextual factors are taken into account. Fryer was actually surprised by the findings. Meanwhile, a National Academy of Science study ignited controversy when its authors proclaimed, we find no evidence of anti-black or anti-Hispanic disparities across shootings, and white officers are not more likely to shoot minority civ civilians than non-white officers. More fundamentally, the research noted that using population as a benchmark makes the strong assumption that white and black civilians have equal exposure to situations that result in fatal officer-involved shootings which is the only way the 2.5 to 1 ratio could be viewed as prima facie evidence of police bias. Instead, they noted that contrary to the accepted narrative, there are racial differences in exposure to these situations. Calculations of racial disparity based on population benchmarks will be misleading. In other words, the 2.5 to 1 ratio taken at face value is actually misleading. So what is the answer? If we shouldn't rely on the univariate analysis of fatal officer-involved shootings, what should we do? The National Academy of Sciences points out that criminologists have known the answer to this question for some time. Researchers have attempted to avoid the issue by using race-specific violent crime as a benchmark uh, as the majority for uh, FOIA-involved armed civilians Perhaps most astonishing is a discovery that when violent crime is used as a benchmark, anti-black disparities in fatal officer-involved shootings disappear or even reverse. In other words, it is white people who are actually shot at disproportionately high rates when the number of interactions with police is tallied up. The idea of racial motivation being a factor in these shootings is further contradicted by Fryer's findings that for white officers, the probability that a white suspect who is involved in an officer-involved shooting has a weapon is 84.2%. The equivalent probability for blacks is 80.9%, a difference of 4%, which is not statistically significant. For black officers, the probability that a white suspect who is involved in an officer-involved shooting has a weapon is surprisingly lower, 57.1%. The equivalent probability for black suspects is 73%. The only statistically significant difference by race demonstrates that black officers are more likely to shoot unarmed white 
That's relative to white officers. This is a fascinating insight, and all of it is footnoted. He says, if we apply the same logic across the board, we find systemic injustice in poli police shootings based on sex, age, geographic region, population, and a host of other factors. Consider two obvious clear examples, sex and age. According to the database maintained by the Washington Post, 96% of the 5,542 people killed by police since 2015 were men. If we use the same logic implied by, employed by those who claim black-white shooting stats prove racial bias, wouldn't wouldn't we have to conclude that an overwhelming disparity in the male-female stats proves misandry? Misandry? Of course, no one is making that claim. Why? Because in this case, we readily admit that a univariate analysis is inadequate to explain the disparity. We also know that the majority of violent crimes are perpetrated by males, which is the top predictor of violence in interaction with police. Uh, example two, children, uh, example two, children and old men versus young men as far as age bias. Who is the one most susceptible to shootings, fatal officer-involved shootings? He writes, another example that proves this point is the disparity in the age of people killed by police. The age breakdown in the U.S. population is as follows. Under 18, 74.2 million, which is 24%. 18 to 44, 112 million, 113 if you round up, that's 36.5%. Over 44, 121 million, that's about 39%. However, the statistics on Americans killed by police don't match up. Of the 5,542 people killed by police since 2015, 101.2% were under the age of 18. 2,736, that's 49%, were between the ages of 18 and 44, and 1,454, 26% were over the age of 44. Note that both the young and the old are underrepresented relative to their population stats, and those in the middle are overrepresented in this prima facie evidence of age discrimination, or is it a function of something else? Why does this age group kill with greater frequency as opposed to the young and the old? And, and as he lays out this description, he says, the relationship between aging and criminal activity has been noted since the beginnings of criminology. And uh, he, he notes the studies by Jeffrey Ulmer and Daryl Steffensmeyer in their paper, The Age and Crime Relationship. Age is a consistent predictor of crime, both in the aggregate and for individuals. And guess which of the three age groups is overrepresented in committing violent crimes? 18 to 44-year-olds. The relationship of these variables is even more pronounced when looking at those killed while unarmed. Of the 355 unarmed people killed by police since 2015, the age breakdown was under the age of 18, 14. That's 4%. 18 to 44, 292, 82%. And over 44 represented 12%. In other words, in terms of representation by age, 36.5% of the population accounts for 82% of those killed by police while unarmed. Bonus, Here, here's, here's the kicker, the killing of police. Let's reverse that, the killing of police. If we're looking for, for racial injustice, let's look at the killing of police. Another fact that should give pause to those who rely on the 2.5 to 1 trope is related to the killing of police by civilians. 
a 2015 Washington Post. <laughs> now, that's not a conservative paper. 2015 Washington Post analysis found that 511 officers were killed in felonious incidents and 540 offenders from 2004 to 2013. Among the total offenders, 52% were white and 43% were black. Ambush killing of officers nearly evenly split racially. There were 304 officers killed in ambush attacks from 1980 to 2013 with 371 offenders involved in the deaths. The percentage of black and white offenders in the ambushes were about the same. 44% were white, 43% were black. Remember, blacks represent approximately 13% of the population and 23.6% of the fatal officer-involved shooting cases in the Washington Post database compared to whites at 60% of the population and 45.3% of fatal officer-involved shootings. The argument is the over-representation of blacks in the fatal officer-involved officer, uh, officer shooting data. And the evidence says that racist uh, evidence of racial police brutality, but anyone who takes that position will find it difficult to escape the implication of these numbers related to the killing of police. If you want to use that and say, well, uh, you know, 2.5 to 1 because uh, blacks only represent 13% of the population, okay. Then let's apply it in reverse. It's, it, they have a greater propensity of violence to police officers. I mean, this is not the way to do it. And yet, this is what's put forward every day of the week, and we're, we're charged with systemic racism in our culture. And yet, when you hear the evidence, unlike the barrage of, of the narrative on the television and the control of the media and the censorship, when you just see the breakdown of the research that's been done, you realize, wait a minute, I got this wrong. Yeah, and, and then we become a pawn. This book is fascinating. You've got to read it. And, and it's not just a book that lays that out. He goes through his entire upbringing, how he came to Christ, how he was born into an impoverished family, all the things he went through and the struggles that he endured. And, and really, you know, right, he just went through, uh, testimony is amazing, he just, he just went through heart surgery. And he finished this book and the attacks that have been upon him and his family and all that he's had to endure. And yet he just lays out the research. This is what he does. He's an academic. He, he does the work. But all of a sudden, he doesn't count. Well, but he's black. Oh, yeah, but he's not really black because he's conservative. He's doing his work. He's also an ordained minister, especially for all of those in the church that are embracing this woke ideology. Take a look at some evidence. Study. Show yourself approved. This is a great book. He's also made friends with um, James Lindsay, the the atheist who wrote Cynical Theory, and the two of them together have done remarkable work, and it's all cited, all footnoted. So you better apply true justice, Christian. The scriptures point out that you can't just hear one side and go out and you're a fool. You've got to do your homework. You've got to listen to both sides. Uh, due process is a Christian idea, and that's what God demands, and God's truth, and He demands that we don't bear false witness. And you've got officers across the country that are under assault and under attack 
for things they're not responsible for. And, and, and they're, being, they're being labeled as systemically racist. The data doesn't hold up. So, um, Christian, do your homework. Pastors, um, you're leading people. You're going to be held to greater account. Take a look at the book. You, you, don't, you don't have to like me. You don't have to appreciate me. You don't have to like Bodhi. You don't have to do any of that. But you got to read it and see it at face value and see the evidence that he puts forward and then make your decision. But to dismiss it because it doesn't fit your narrative, be careful. Uh, God hates that. Remember? We were looking at... Pro- yeah. Okay. That's the best I can give you. Uh, pick up this book. Read it. It's, it's phenomenal. And I, I just encourage all of you. And I'm hoping to get him to come and speak at the church. I know that uh, James Lindsay agreed to come in June. I just texted with him, so I'm stoked on that. Well, it's been a wonderful week. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I want to close with uh, number six. And this is a blessing for all of you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And may the Lord make His face to shine upon you. And may He be gracious unto you. And may the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. God bless you guys. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. Hey guys, thanks for watching. For more information, head over to VintageMcCoy.com or follow us on Instagram at The Vintage McCoy. We'll see you there.